Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Android Central Podcast. This, the last episode of March 2018. It is March 30th. It's a Friday, and here in Toronto, it is nice and sunny, which is awesome because it's been raining for two days. And I'm very happy to welcome back all the way from the West Coast of the United States of America. You know that place. Andrew mm-hmm. Martinick, how are you? I'm doing just fine. I wonder how many people kind of skipped a beat there when you said this is the last podcast. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to uh, throw in March. some tension right from the beginning. You needed more of a cliffhanger there. Uh, it's like when they open a, an episode of a TV show with the person getting killed and then goes five days earlier and then goes back. But I, I did all of that, all of that amazing narrative tension. I built that up in approximately two seconds. It was just as effective. <laughs> right, Hayato Husman, welcome back. How are you? Hey, that's me. I'm good. That's How are you? you? Yeah. I'm so happy that you're here. You were here yeah. uh, a few months ago for uh, the OnePlus 5T launch. And um, yeah. and that was uh, back in November. And it seems like a long time ago, even though it was only four months ago. Well, you know, now it's a lot sunnier and warmer outside, relatively anyway. It's still 48 degrees over here. Awesome. But, you know, I'll take 48 it. 48 whole degrees. If that was Celsius, it would be... It would be no that even that wouldn't be enjoyable. That would be on the other side of the spectrum. It would be horrible. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it sounds nicer than it is here. Let's just talk about weather the entire episode. How's that? Every week. That's yeah. <laughs> let's just do it. Um, but alas, we should talk. We should talk uh, tech. So this week we're going to go into um, we're going to kind of go back to Facebook. We ended last episode talking a bit about the Facebook debacle. Things have happened since then, including uh, something to do with Android specifically that we'll talk about. We'll also talk about the OnePlus 6 and what it will and will not have, notch have. I I mean, Mm -hmm. that's so bad now, and nobody can make that joke anymore. Um, We'll talk about... I felt so bad because every every notch-related article I've written has always had like three or four uh, different puns scattered throughout it. I need to really calm down on that. Your, your, but uh, you, you were writing about notches before that joke was dead, so you can own it. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like when the startup, when the stand-up comedian, um, you know, originates the joke, and then he still says the joke, but he's not as well-known as all the other people not that you're not as well. Oh, I don't know. Whatever. But you know That's what I'm Hayato, saying. Right there. Yeah. Um, we're also going to talk about the first Chrome OS tablet from Acer, which will be interesting. And to contrast that with Apple's recent education-focused announcements, a new iPad and Apple Pencil. And it's all very expensive. And then, and then, oh, by the way, remember that court case from back in 2010 with oracle yep google is finally going to pay up and finally we will end with uh one of the more interesting phones of the year so far the huawei p20 and p20 pro alas alex who was going to be on the podcast is stuck in france because air france apparently sucks and he tell he wanted us to be very clear about this adamant (laughs) That Air France is terrible. So if anybody from Air France is listening in the unlikely event that anybody <laughs> from that company is listening, I don't know. Because I don't even, not I only, have nothing against them. I have no, nothing not against them. Not only did them. they cancel his flight, though, because he has a checked bag, they're holding his checked bag, quote unquote, hostage. 
Right. As, as Alex says, poor guy, I don't think they're demanding any ransom or anything, but you know, he's going to have to wait like 20 something hours before he gets on a flight. I'm sure. Horrible. Well, we're comfortable back here. So let's dig, dig right in. Um, okay. So Andrew, let's start from, uh, Facebook and we left off last week, companies embroiled in controversy. There's, um, criticism that, uh, Zuckerberg and his executive team have been silent and they're not really taking responsibility for this so-called or alleged data breach. This week, however, we got all of those things. We got Zuckerberg's uh, mea culpa. We've got full page ads in some of the largest newspapers in the world. And at the same time, we had this Facebook Android permissions thing that yeah, just kind of bubbled up furthered the narrative that Facebook kind of sucks when it comes to data privacy. Tell us a little bit about this. So th- this actually, it's funny because it all kind of took a while to get to a head. It started with a couple of people on Twitter, I think kind of using the, um, what the hashtag delete Facebook or whatever saying, hey, uh, by the way, I downloaded all my data from, uh, you know, the Facebook data export tool. And it has massive numbers of uh, phone call records and text messages. Uh, That's really weird because I don't recall ever having given them permission to collect that. And that's really creepy. Um, So after you kind of look into it, it makes a whole lot of sense if you've been using Android for a long time, because back before on-use permissions like we have in Marshmallow and Later, uh, apps could just declare that they needed to read your contact list, which makes sense. You know, something that, you know, an app used to connect you to other people you know on a different service should be able to read your contacts. Well, that granted permission to also pull your call logs and message history because things were just kind of a little more lax back then. Now, it wasn't that this was something that was completely hidden, but it was something that was declared at the time that you installed the app. And your only option was to either install the app or not install the app. You didn't have the option to install it and decline that. So basically, of course, Facebook said, well, if we're going to declare this, we want to pull in all this stuff. So maybe if you didn't have somebody, if you think about this, if you didn't have somebody in your contacts, but you called back and forth, and that other person did have their phone number associated to their Facebook profile, now they can make that connection. And then they know that you know that person because you're calling back and forth or sending messages back and forth. Kind of creepy a little bit, but it does make sense from Facebook's perspective. They want to try to make those connections. Um, I didn't, uh, interestingly, I didn't have any of that information in my Facebook download. Um, did, did you guys have that information? No, I didn't. And I, I found it really interesting because um, I have intermittently given Facebook my, uh, the, the ability to upload um, my contacts to its server. Yeah. But I wonder Same. if in, in sort of, s- in restricting other aspects of Facebook's app over the years, I had either prevented those contacts from being uploaded or they, they weren't being kept in the main database. Because even though Facebook Messenger is a separate app, it's still using the sort of main Facebook data store 
um, the same place that they store your advertising preferences and all your friends and everything else. Um, it's still using that when you, when you accept the prompt to upload your contacts. And I think mm-hmm. the most egregious part of this, Andrew, is that when Facebook Messenger opens for the first time on any new phone, this happens to us probably every week or two when we re, you know, we get a new phone and we download Facebook Messenger and we open it for the first time. It says it gives you two, three prompts. The first is text anybody on your phone and it asks you whether or not you want to upload your contacts. The second one is about, um, about whether or not you want to make Facebook your default SMS app. And then there's a whole bunch of other like little options that, you know, when you get this pop-up, it says turn on in this beautiful blue button that you that your mind just wants to tap. And then the not now or the skip is smaller. It's not quite as pronounced. And for a lot of people, they're just going to tap turn on, yes, 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 and go through because they want to talk to people on Messenger. auto-filled their phone number in there. And so it's basically like kind of giving you this response like, oh yeah, that's my phone number. But really what you're agreeing to is to link those two things. So the issue here is that they were not being, so even though yes, technically, and this is something that Facebook said on a blog post that it posted last week, they don't actually sell the data. They don't use it for anything. They just make it easier for you to get in touch with people who are in your contact list and also are on Facebook Messenger. It just looks really right. bad when you download this entire stack of data and everything, including your call logs and text logs, are not the actual data, like not the contents of the texts themselves, but the fact that you made this call, you made this text to this person at this time. Um, that's creepy. Yeah. And I think that the the bigger thing is that so Google changed up the way Android permissions worked with Marshmallow in 2015. But of course, there's always this grace period where you can continue to target as a developer, target an older version of Android um, for a long period after new versions come out so that you can continue to serve users on previous versions. So Facebook continued to target the Lollipop level uh, of API so that they could continue to use this old, among other things, continue to use this old permissions model that was declare at install rather than declare at run, even though you could have potentially been using a Marshmallow or Nougat phone that has on-use permissions. Mm -hmm. So this went far beyond uh, 2015 when it could have theoretically stopped uh, because they wanted to continue to keep these open permissions and, of course, address the widest possible market with the Facebook app. So the nice thing here is that this eventually stopped because eventually... Google completely deprecated these older API levels. You couldn't target them and still have your app run on newer versions. And so now you have situations where you actually get the little pop-up on your phone that says, like, Facebook wants to use your microphone and camera. Facebook wants to read your messages, yada, yada, yada. But the issue here is that occasionally Facebook also uh, would because it was in many in many instances it was installed as a system app 
it mm-hmm. was allowed to bypass that API deprecation. Sorry, that that um, uh, that that Google um, the, yeah, the words, API level restriction. Yeah, the though, a- API level restriction. So what happened was, if you ran, say, a Samsung phone or basically any phone at all that had Facebook installed as a system app, you wouldn't necessarily be reprompted to mm-hmm. accept those permissions, even though Google doesn't allow those older permission models to be used, which is really strange and frustrating because Facebook is the most popular app on the entire Play Store, other than Google's own apps that are pre-installed on every phone. And it advantages what is quickly becoming what is what is beca- quickly becoming um, known as the most data hungry company on earth. Yeah. So it just kind of it gives the bad guy or at least the bad actor an advantage in a situation where they should actually have more restrictions, not less. I, I think that Facebook's biggest benefit was that nobody was looking critically at this whole situation. I don't think that, uh, okay, Facebook was clearly not being very open or clear or transparent about any of this stuff. But it wasn't really being pushed to be open or clear or transparent about anything either. No, uh, People were very freely doing this. And I think this, um, we can have Jerry on a different time to talk about it, but um, he he wrote something that was, you know, just saying kind of what many of us were thinking, you know, when do we take responsibility a little bit for the fact that not only were we willingly giving them all of this stuff, uh, we weren't really making any attempt to hold them accountable for what they were doing with it either. Totally. And I mean, it would be one thing if, and the, the people who are listening, one of those arguments against what we're saying is that we are getting something in return for giving up this privacy. Um, and then, you know, we use Google often as an example of a company that we are willing to give up some of our privacy in order to benefit from many features, the uh, features of Google Photos, for example, where they uh, they use machine learning to identify faces. I mean, that is something that you're, you're giving up your privacy so that Google can more accurately represent you know your friends and family in in future products that's something that you generally feel okay about i know i do because the benefit the net benefit for me is higher with facebook i never felt that net benefit i always felt like they were being nefarious and they weren't getting they weren't giving me much back in in return is that how you feel hayato like how are you kind of um balancing this you know your relationship with facebook and it's various brands instagram i know you are you use instagram quite a bit um because you're you're a youth and uh, <laughs> <laughs> um with kind of the the acknowledgement that they they may have acted in bad faith you know i mean i i use a lot of facebook products like instagram but i don't use facebook itself almost at all anymore um and so it doesn't really it, it does affect me, but you know, I, I don't think it affects me as much as it does other people. Um, I don't necessarily mind them having my information. Um, you know, my, 
the only reason I use Facebook at this point is just to keep up with some older friends and then just to, to participate in some like musician circle kind of things. But uh, for the most part, it's sort of an, a non-issue for me, although I still, you know, I mean, obviously it's not good that they're, it's never going to be a good thing that they're going to be, you know, taking our information without really being upfront about it. But as, as far as I'm concerned, it's not too much of an issue for me personally. Yeah. And I think that is the response that I'm hearing from a lot of people is like, well, I don't really use Facebook, so it doesn't matter. But the reality is that everybody I know uses Instagram more than any other service. Yeah. Facebook shares all of its data with Instagram. So, and especially when it comes to ad targeting, I mean, you know, we run the Android central Facebook page. We often buy ads for Facebook to promote some of our, um, you know, our, our biggest content. Right now we have something going with AT&T where we're hosting a couple of uh, co-sponsored events, one in New York City, one in San Francisco, which I'll tell you about a bit later. It's going to be fun. We bought some ads for that. And when you do that on Facebook, it can target the same people on Instagram. It's just a checkbox. That's it. So it's super easy to give the, to, to sort of, have all of that data from Facebook, the people that follow your page, the, um, it, it allows you to more accurately target your groups on fate on Instagram. And what was interesting to me was I, I, I forget which company it was, but, um, a large publication did a survey and found that a lot of people do not know that Facebook owns Instagram. Which surprised really? me. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's it's fascinating to me that that's not part of just the general knowledge base of of large tech companies. Yeah, I I guess I've never really asked many people about that, but I feel like that would have kind of come through in the whole. You know, you can sign into Instagram with your Facebook, and then all of your photos get cross posted. And your friends get suggested. I don't know. Maybe they just assume that's more of a partnership than anything. Well, but I mean, you can do that with a lot of other services too. Right. I mean, there's a ton of apps you can sign in with Facebook and, you know, things like Twitter will just use your contacts or I think you can sync your Facebook um, info over to Twitter also to do that same kind of like contact finding. Right. And I think that the bigger thing is that people look at Instagram as a very kind of narrow, easier to understand situation. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, I follow people. They follow me. I publish photos. I comment and like on their photos. It's a very narrow thing. I think people very regularly follow or are, you know, quote unquote friends with far fewer people on Instagram in their immediate circle as Facebook. And it's just a little bit easier transaction to understand. And so maybe they just assume that that's not, you know, not connected to uh, to Facebook because it's, it's so much different, um, in its entire structure. Yeah. It's also, I mean, it's neither here nor there, but the way that I've set up my Facebook, I have very few friends on there that I don't actually know in real life, or at least have some personal connection to. Whereas Instagram over the last couple of years has expanded to include, I mean, I have a dog, as I'm sure, you know, I follow a hundred, hundreds probably of dog accounts of Great Dane owners of other cute <laughs> dogs. I love dogs. What can I say? I love going on Instagram for that. I follow coffee companies because I love coffee. I follow all of these amazing, you know, I, I, it's like you kind of curate your life based on the people that you follow on Instagram. And it sounds, um, it sounds boring when you, when you hear it out loud, but what it does 
is the ads that you see on Instagram then become far more targeted than the ones that you see on Facebook, given that I spend far more time on Instagram curating the kinds of experiences that I want to see. So, you know, I've been getting this Facebook, I've been getting this uh, ad for this like handheld espresso maker um, (laughs) on Instagram for the last like three weeks. And when I first saw it, I was like, oh, screw you, Instagram. This is, you know, you're you're like getting me right in the feels. I'm going to resist this. I'm going to, you know, this is probably a bad product. I don't care about this. But after seeing it so many times, I'm like, okay, I'm going to click on it. And I clicked on it and I learned about it and I very nearly bought it. And it was so quick, that conversion for me being skeptical about this product, knowing exactly what was happening to me almost buying it. I, I mean, I, yeah. I can understand why Facebook is one of the biggest ad companies in the world. So that's a perfect example of this narrower scope just helps the company know exactly who they're targeting in a way that I'm sure you would probably have if somebody were to start on Facebook today, you know, if if young people were actually using Facebook, uh, you know, genuinely, they would come in and everything they wouldn't have this, you know, this backlog of all this old cruft like they do on Facebook. Because Facebook, I downloaded my, you know, cache of data from them. It was pretty large. The The thing is, it has no real idea who I am. It's not even close because it has these years and years of all this stuff. And Facebook has changed so much. Yeah. And you have all these old, old pages that no longer exist or have been co-opted or bought and sold or whatever. And you have these all these old likes and these old... Um, relationships that have completely, you know, like you're not friends with those people on Facebook anymore. It's just completely different. Whereas people, you know, are so much fresher on Instagram and in this narrow area that yeah. it's so much easier to know exactly who you are based on that. That's such a good point. I, I hadn't thought about it like that, but my data on Facebook is so much older and not relevant to me anymore. The likes, yeah. the bands that I used to like. I mean, Hayato, I, I don't know, like, are you, when you say you use Facebook less, but to, do you use it for like events and getting together with friends? Like, is, is there an element of Facebook that you kind of, that you would need that you wouldn't be able to find on another social network? Uh, like I said, pretty much just musician groups. There's, you know, little, little uh, communities of, of, Say like the the specific brand of guitars that I always buy and play uh, has has a group for you know if you f- they'll they'll post a different topic every week of like you know write a song that's like this and if you do you'll get points that'll go towards you know getting guitars and talking to other people and that's pretty much the only thing I use Facebook for and maybe like sometimes the Facebook Messenger side of things but uh, no I mean that's that's you know. I, I pretty much, I, I don't have Facebook installed on any of my phones. I just go to the website if I really need to check it out. But uh, no, I, I, I almost don't use Facebook at all anymore. Yeah. So we'll see. I, I know that Zuckerberg has de- uh, declined to, um, to talk to the UK, um, uh, the, the hearing that they've, that, that they've, started um in the uk uh i I don't know exactly when it was supposed to happen but he has agreed to testify in front of the u.s congress 
Um, mm. Given that Cambridge Analytica is it's is based in the UK, right? Um, That's my understanding. So I feel like the Tories probably have a vested interest in getting him in front of the. Uh, I keep saying the House of Representatives in my mind, but it's not. It's Parliament. Parliament. Thank you. I'm in Canada, and I can't even think of the word. Um, yeah. So Facebook has said many. Uh, they've posted many things over the last week about how they will make their privacy settings easier to find. They will do a lot more to protect elections. Um, up, the upcoming U.S. midterms is obviously a big target for influence, uh, more so now than ever, given a lot of what we've heard of the last year about how Cambridge Analytica f- reportedly affected the results, or at least tried to affect the results of the 2016 election. So we'll see. I, I you know, it's it's interesting stuff. It's not Android specific, but it's certainly Android and Google adjacent. Um, let's switch gears and talk Hayato a little bit about uh, a phone that I think we're all sort of looking forward to, and the shape of it, literally and figuratively, is coming into a view a little bit more clearly this hmm. week. The OnePlus 6, we know, will have a notch. And we know a little bit of, more about the justification for that. Tell us about it. What, what is, what, what's the latest on the, uh, from, from Carl Pei and co? Uh, well, I mean, you know, they, they finally gave us an, an actual uh, official image of it with the, with the notch that, I think it's pretty slim. You know, it's just big enough to hold the earpiece sensor, the camera, and the uh, and the infrared sensor, or the ambient light sensor. That is, um, and yeah, I mean, basically, basically, they've you know, Carl Pay kind of put out a statement talking about the notch and why they thought it would be, um, why, why they thought sort sort of the same sentiment that I've come to, which is that you know, the, the notch instead of taking away screen space, it, it you know, they they see it as adding more space. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, it, it's really just as as long as you're also getting a taller aspect ratio, it's just giving you more vertical space by, you know, sort of pushing the notification shade up. And I don't think you really make much use out of the middle of the uh, of the notification shade anyway. So, um, you know, you're, you're gaining space there. Everything still manages to fit, especially with it being a small enough notch. You know, you still manage to have enough room for your notifications and, and all of your status bar icons and all that stuff. Um, it's interesting because there's this very detailed blog post by uh, the company's CEO, Pete Lau. And Andrew, he said he actually highlights the exact dimensions of the notch, 19.616 <laughs> millimeters by 7.687. And I, I, you know, I, I, I kind of, see in my mind a few people taking out a piece of paper and ruler and trying to <laughs> measure exactly what that looks like in relation to the one see plus how much five they're going to dislike it um but what he says at the bottom which is interesting um there's a little faq it says the notch ruins my ability to enjoy movies and games can you block out the notch through software and yes you will be able to there will be a compatibility mode and they've tested the compatibility mode with a thousand of the most popular apps in the play store. And it works wonderfully. Uh, what do you think about this solution? Uh, I, it's totally fine. I think that Hayato was, you know, explaining it perfectly well. You're not losing screen real estate here. You're gaining it. It's just, uh, we went through this with the essential phone. It doesn't matter that it's, you know, this one's going to be wider. It's basically the same situation. Uh, the quote unquote compatibility mode is just 
putting a black bar at the top where the notch is, which, by the way, is precisely where there would just be no screen before. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because the, the whole reason why the bezel is there in the first place, especially on the top, is that there's all this stuff up there that has to be there. Now, all they're doing is just consolidating that stuff into one central spot so that the screen can flow up on the on the sides. Now, there's, of course, there's a bezel on the bottom of the phones because they have to have the display components and, you know, that kind of stuff down there. Uh, And it would be kind of weird to have the notch on the bottom because there's nothing else to really put down there. I see absolutely no problem with this. I mean, for all the software issues that the essential phone had, it handled the notch completely fine. And that was on a phone that was just uh 16 by nine. I right. It's 16 by nine. I'm not crazy. What is the essential the phone? Essential phone. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So that was even more of a, you know, a forced compatibility because that actually had to shrink the top of apps down just a tad. Mm hmm. When you go to something that's two by one or this, in this case, it's a little taller than two by one. That's extra screen that you just would never have in the first place. So the compatibility mode is just one plus five T mode is is all it is. It just this little extra bit uh, up on the top is stuff that would not be there anyway. And like Hayato said, what, what else are you doing up there? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's on... I agree that if the notch starts to get wide, it starts to impede the notification shade uh, or the notification bar filling up from the left, all that kind of stuff. I get that. But that's really such a narrow use case that uh, I just don't see it. I just don't see it being an issue. I mean, you, you're you're just having status information up there. And, and you know, what, one of my issues, I, I, one of the issues I've seen a lot of people talk about with, with you know, these taller phones um, is that it makes the, the notification shade harder to reach. And I've had that experience on my iPhone 10 that I've you know recently switched to. It is kind of a pain to reach the notifications with it being so much taller. Um, but the nice thing about something like the OnePlus uh, 6 is going to be that, you know, it still has the ability to pull down the notification shade just by swiping down on the screen or, right. you know, I would assume because it does have a rear fingerprint sensor, you'll still be able to do that whole, uh, you know, swipe down gesture as well. So, I mean, even just look at the OnePlus 5 to 5T. The The phone just got a little taller and a little skinnier, but you got even more screen than the proportions that it got taller and skinnier. This is just the same kind of situation, especially when you look at this photo, the one OnePlus released. The, the top bezel beyond, you know, where the actual screen ends, notch aside, is tiny. I highly doubt that this phone is going to be much larger, if at all, than the OnePlus 5T. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Um, Hayato and I have an iPhone 10, and the iPhone 10 actually has a 19.5 by 9 aspect ratio, but you can't really tell because the phone's physically smaller than most Android flagships. But yeah, Apple does no favors to the UI by forcing you to go all the way to the top to swipe down to have these zones where you have to it swipe has, specifically yeah, different things from each corner, right? It's so annoying. Yeah. And it, it actually, I feel like Android with its extreme flexibility is going to be more generous to the way that uh, various OEMs implement notches, especially come 2019 when Android P is a little bit more ubiquitous 
and they are able to sort of implement all those features directly into the OS so that Android manufacturers don't have to customize their own versions of Android to accommodate the Play Store apps. They will just, like the Play Store apps will have an SDK and various APIs to accommodate the notches so that it'll be on the developers to make their apps look better rather than on the manufacturers to, I guess, create these compatibility layers that may not look great. And we've seen this even with the current line of the Galaxy's flagships. When they introduce their 18.5 by 9 aspect ratio, they have a compatibility mode that you can automatically turn on for apps that don't support the the higher aspect ratio. It's not a difficult thing. It's a single tap for most apps and it looks fine, but it's still it's still an added step. And, and the big thing there with the, the putting it on the developers is that they can then decide what they want to do. So if they're a full screen, uh, like a 16 by nine video app, they can say for sure, do not draw in that area where the, the notch is just put a black bar there, just like we see on the, uh, on the galaxy S nine, because it's so tall, it needs to have pillar boxing. That's just how it is. Yeah. Or the developer can, it, it can be like Google maps on the essential phone where, you know, the overflow portion of the map just kind of flows up into the corners because it's not critical to have it there, but it just gives you a little more context on what's going on. And that's super easy to do when it's going to be at the, at the platform level. I think the, the, the big thing is people trying to overcome this feeling that they're losing out on something by having this notch there. I just don't know how you convince people uh, they're still going to at one plus and LG and everybody else that's going to do this has to, has to overcome that. I just don't understand. I, I guess I just don't understand where the hate's coming from. Uh, Hayato. I love the, um, your, your subhead in your latest article, uh, which is called does the notch add screen space or take it away. <laughs> it, it, the subhead is the answer may depend on if you're a glass half empty or a half full person. And it's so yeah. true. I mean, like mathematically, we know that you are not losing any real estate. Mathematically, you are like, it is objectively true that you're gaining screen real estate with this. It is screen real estate that you would not otherwise have, right? So that is a fact. But so many people are seeing this as an affront, as a way that OEMs are, are stealing potential screen real estate from them. Um, it, it's 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 kind of strange, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I in my time with the iPhone 10 and then with a couple of other phones that have notches like the Essential Phone, I actually really enjoy it. You know, it's I've seen some people say that maybe we could even put a a second notch at the bottom just to balance it out for symmetry that would hold like say like the fingerprint sensor or the home button or whatever. Um, I think that might be taking it a bit too far, but no, I, I really have no problems at all with the notch. I I I'm, I'm with you guys. I, I don't really understand the whole you know huge hate for it. The interesting thing is that nobody complained when we went, you know, we as a as a smartphone industry went from 16 by 9 to these 18 by 9 and taller displays when those those actually technically did take away screen real estate from you. And nobody nobody seemed to care uh, when when Samsung came out with the Galaxy S8 and it had a 5.8 inch display, but it was this 18.5 by 9 aspect ratio that was smaller physically than all of the other 5.5 to five, you know, to six inch 
16 by 9 displays. Nobody seemed to complain because it made the phone easier to use. It it gave you a lot of extra real estate, you know, up and down without making it super wide, like something like um, the the Note Five or something like that. Um, it, it I just don't understand how you could complain about this. I guess it's just so much more noticeable and concentrated to the top of the screen, right? Yeah, it's it's also to me. I've I think that. Um, it's not obvious because of the marketing that the screens are smaller. For example, the Galaxy S7 had a 5.1-inch 16 by 9 display. So tiny. Tiny, right? On paper, it looks tiny. But the Galaxy S8 with a 5.8-inch, it's so spacious, blah, blah, blah. It's not actually any bigger. You're getting more real estate north, and as you said, and and slightly less uh, east and west. And... You, I mean, yes, it is slightly bigger because it's it, it's it's a physically larger phone, but you are giving something up. You're compromising, and the I think what Samsung and LG did when they first put out those phones was they did such a good job marketing the fact that the phones were physically larger because they had less bezel around the screens. Right. That it it negated any pushback by by us by like the the press or by users when it came to the fact that they were sacrificing actual real estate on the screen. So one thing we can say though, is that all of these companies have done a really crappy job of justifying why their screens are now shaped like this. Uh, obviously, um, yeah, Asus was particularly bad uh, oh my God, that <laughs> trying was so to justify it. If did they even justify it? They really didn't. It was just kind of like, haha, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Look at the thing we did. It more than a justification. I just don't, you know, why can't anyone come up with this simple justification of saying, look, the screen is taller. Put the side by side up. Like we could have just made the top bezel large, or we can do this and put the status bar information up there and look, it's adjustable and yada, yada. It, it should be pretty easy to explain this rather than saying like, haha, look, we, 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 uh, we did a thing that everybody else is doing for no reason. Well, I think that's kind of what OnePlus did though with its, with its huge, yeah. uh, statement. It's, it's pre, um, pre tempering things. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you, Andrew. And I think what's interesting is, the reason that they've been so bad at justifying the notch is because Apple made such a good argument, made such a strong argument about why the notch is there. And the reason that they said the notch is there is that we have no other way of giving you an all all screen device right now. We have to have this notch because we want to do face ID and face ID requires this number of sensors. And as a result, you know, our our ultimate goal is to give you an, a full screen phone, right? We would prefer the notch isn't there, but until then, we were we were gonna, you know, we'll have to give you this next best thing. With Android OEMs, the actual hardware that sits in the space where the notch is is not nearly as advanced, so they don't have that technological argument, that justification for its existence. Right, and the fact that they're giving you larger screen real estate—it's the exact same reason as every as all of their competitors. So they're all coming out with this exact same solution to a problem that ostensibly Apple solved six months ago, and none of them are improving on it. 
So it's like they are just catching up. And I think that I, right. from a marketing perspective is very is a very difficult story to tell. So I agree with Hayato, actually. OnePlus coming out of, uh, out of the gate and basically like saying, listen, we are trying to do the same thing that Apple is doing. We just don't have the technology for it right now. So we're going to give you this stopgap measure and that's all we can do. And because OnePlus has a tradition of being so transparent by necessity because they screwed up so many times, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> I think it's it's important for them to maintain that relationship. Whereas Asus, they just blatantly copy Apple with everything yeah, they, they do. They had, they had nothing good to say. For and, and, and there's nothing, you're basically just buying a knockoff Apple product. So for me, when I saw the, the Zenfone 5, you, you you gain nothing. There was zero benefit from this design, and the the software wasn't optimized for it very well, and it just felt like a like a knockoff. Um, I don't know, Hayato. Is that is that the impression you got as well? Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I, I see a lot of people also kind of talking about you know why can't everybody else just do what Xiaomi is doing with like the with the Mi Mix and the Mi Mix Two? Um, but you know, then you get front-facing camera at the bottom of your screen which is right. super unflattering so and i forget the company that said it um but there was a company that came out with a reason for why um android phones require a chin at the bottom of their phone and it's because well, typically it's the display right it is yeah it's a display connector and the reason that apple doesn't have one is because they spent a ton of money designing a custom one that goes behind the phone but what it, what that does is it adds thickness so the iPhone 10 is quite thick compared to a lot of other flagships on the market but that was really the only way that they could prevent a chin at the bottom and I find that interesting yep. because you kind of and that you know we'll, we'll talk about this in a bit but that may be why um, Huawei went with a front-facing fingerprint sensor on the p20 and p20 pro because they had to have a chin and they didn't have any other use for that space. Yeah, and this is the same. I mean, that's uh, this fold fold back kind of connector is part of why you're seeing phones that are flat still using uh, foldable or flexible bendable OLED because they just make the panel a little taller and then just bend it back on itself to use the the connectors and then just disable that portion of the screen that's you know, hidden in that little tiny bezel. It's the same thing we saw. Um, we saw Vivo doing, and we saw we've seen different manufacturers doing it. Samsung's been doing it for a while as well. They just haven't used it to such dramatic effect. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I I'm looking forward to it. I also, um, you know, I when I was thinking about things to talk about for this show, um, you know, the OnePlus Five T was. It, it came, you know, only a few months, five months or so after the OnePlus 5. We now are getting hints that the OnePlus 6 will be even earlier in the year. They've always launched their flagships in June. We may see it in, as early as April, maybe even, you know, maybe May. But Hayato, you wrote something uh, a few months ago about how phones cannot really compete if they have bad haptics a few months ago. It was actually early March. It seems like a few months ago. And that was coming from your experience with the iPhone's Taptic engine, but we also have the LG V30. Um, I, I put my SIM card in the OnePlus 5T the other day, and as great as that hardware is, I noticed that the the haptics in it are are pretty mushy. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that I would say that phones can't compete with bad haptics. It's, it's just, it's so much nicer when they have good haptics, you know? Um, which is why I'm actually really jealous that you get to mess around with the uh, Xperia XZ2, or at least the compact. Um, but no, I, I don't think it's that they can't compete. It's just, it's such a, such a different experience with a phone that does have good haptics. And, uh, you know, when, when they, when they use them right, you know, I really like that on the iPhone, it, uh, it sort of implements it throughout the entire system. It's not just, you know, like maybe three different levels of, of feedback. It's, you know, I scroll through a list and it'll click at me with every, you know, little, little bit on the list as if the, you know, as if it's a, a notch turning, mm-hmm. um, not that kind of notch. <laughs> um, but you know, it, it's just sort of implemented system wide and it feels really natural. It makes, it, it adds this dimension to the phone. Um, and the LG V30 did the same thing. You scroll through, um, say the, I think it was the, the zoom on the camera. If you're, if you're zooming in, you'll feel that same kind of click and it just makes everything feel like almost like, you know, physical controls. And I really, really enjoyed that. I don't think it ruins the experience to have bad haptics, but, uh, it's, it's super noticeable to me at least when, when, you know, you have really good haptics and that, that definitely makes for a different experience. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting to the point now where I feel like bad haptics do ruin the phone for me. And I, I know that's, um, because I've just, I'm just used to phones that have, you know, tighter, tighter feedback. And I, I think that's, especially when by default you type on an Android phone mm-hmm. and the keyboard mm-hmm. gives you haptics, whereas on, on iOS, it doesn't. So I find that that experience, if that typing experience, which you do so often on the touchscreen is not done properly, if the haptics are not calibrated for the keyboard that loads by default, I don't know. I just, that, that takes the, it lessens the experience for me. So yeah. the, the way that I explained it when I was talking to you about it, Daniel, was if you if you notice the haptics, that means they're probably bad and that's going to be a bad experience. The good ones are the ones that you don't notice as haptics, but like Hayato said, you notice them as part of the interface. Bingo. You don't you don't hear the haptics, you don't hear the rumble or the vibration or the buzz of them. You only feel them in your hands, and that's it. And that it, it makes this experience of swiping around on something that's just a dead piece of glass uh with no texture at all to it uh into something that feels like it has you know stops and starts and you're interacting with something 100 percent. yeah i i completely agree so yeah i'm hoping that oneplus if it does increase the price of the of its new phone it will justify some of it by including better haptics but that you know that's just something that you get from cheaper phones it's it's true of of basically every phone under seven hundred dollars today so and look it's just it's something you notice as kind of like a cheapening of the experience when when something in your phone which is an entirely solid state device is rattling or moving around it just doesn't feel right and you notice it, especially, <laughs> I notice it, especially in the Essential phone when I was trying out their new USB-C headphones. Like you plugged in the headphones and you could feel the vibration from tapping on the phone through the wire of the headphones. Jesus. That's how you know that your <laughs> your haptic motor is bad. That's brutal. My favorite yeah. example to use has always been like the older HTC and Motorola phones that, you know, you set them down on the table and it just, it shakes the entire room, <laughs> it feels like. Right, yeah. yeah, but I mean, those were at least, they, they were... 
they were tighter. I mean, HTC they had such, such a powerful vibration engine. Yeah, but it was it was a little bit tighter. Anyway, we'll 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 get there and we'll probably have things to say about it. But I want to I want to take a break and I want to thank our first sponsor. And, and usually, our first sponsor at this time of the show is Thrifter. And uh, and we love Thrifter. We go to the site. We do we do the thing. But this week we have a new sponsor, so we're doing we're going to do Thrifter next. And uh, this week's sponsor is Audible. So we're so happy to welcome Audible to the show. Audible, if you don't know, is uh, the premier place to get audiobooks and um, and increasingly sort of uh, unique audio shows. So it's not just audiobooks. They have they have uh, kind of like Netflix. They've started producing their own content, but. Audible is basically the place to go when you don't want to read a book with your eyes, you want to read it with your ears. And we have a really special offer that will allow you to try Audible for free for 30 days. And within that trial, you get a free audiobook. So right now, I I did that. I signed up for Audible and I came across this book. It's called Tiger Woods. It's about the eponymous, famous uh, athlete, the controversial, amazing, talented athlete. Uh, the book's written by Jeff Benedict and Armin Katayan. It's narrated by Roger Casey, who you may be familiar with because he's narrated like tons of books. And it's all about Tiger Woods's life. It, it, the, the, the authors, um, they've written for Sports Illustrated for many years. They spent, I think, three years interviewing 400 people attached to Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods is, um, Andrew, you're a, a golf fanatic. You know how private he is. Every yeah, interview very... before he kind of disappeared, he gave was extremely um, produced, right? He never went off the cuff. Everything uh, he did was extremely, it, it was not meant to give any of his personal information, right? So this whole I would, I would say downfall back in 2009 was the first time that we saw any cracks in that armor. But Tiger Woods has an amazing story. And right now, if you sign up for Audible by going to audible.com slash ACP or texting ACP, that's Android Central Podcast, ACP, to 5050, you can, uh, you can actually get a free month of Audible and a, I'm sorry, 500, 500, not 5050. Um, so go to audible.com slash ACP or text ACP to 500, 500, and you can sign up for a free trial of one month and you get a free Audible book that you can keep forever. And we're very happy to welcome Audible to our show. How was that? That was okay. I think I did okay. That was the first. I always get nervous about first ad reads, especially with a company like Audible. So, Anyway, hope uh, I, I think it'll get tighter, just like the one for Thrifter gets tighter and tighter every week. Mm-hmm. So get ready, it's coming. Um, so let's move on. Let's talk about tablets. Eh, do we want to talk Android about tablet? tablets? Eh, I don't even want to talk about it. Let's just stop. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> so this week, we had two tablet announcements that were interesting. Andrew, the first was... Acer announcing the Chromebook Tab 10. This is a $329 Chromebook tablet. So it's sans keyboard, but it basically runs Chrome OS. Sorry, 329 it says, euro. It, 
Um, it says book right in the name, though. <laughs> I was okay. Question mark. And it's interesting um, for a couple of reasons. Well, it's interesting because <laughs> even though the hardware is kind of bland, it is the first tablet to run Chrome OS, which to my mind means that Google is at a point where it's working with its hardware partners to position Chrome as a tablet operating system, right? That's the interesting part, not the hardware. Okay, yeah. I, it's not interesting as a product, but it is interesting as Google is finally confirming that this is a thing they want to do. It's just taking the kind of generic appliance uh, benefit of Chrome OS and applying it to a tablet, which does make sense. I'm not sure it makes as much sense at the $320 price point that we're talking about here when there are solid Chromebooks that are well under $320. Um, but I'm sure that'll come with time. The interesting thing here, I suppose, is that this Chromebook Tab 10, my God, how did you let that happen, uh, is basically just a Chromebook on the inside. It's um, it's running on a rock chip uh, OP1 platform. It's similar to what we saw on the Samsung Chromebook Plus, not the Pro. You know, 32 gigs of storage, SD card slot, 4 gigs of RAM, all the, the regular stuff. It's just basically a Chromebook. They just slap the battery into the back of instead of the base, and they don't have any detachable idea for it. Um, this is obviously just like all of or 99% of Acer's products in the Chrome OS range uh, targeted at the education space, which you understand. Um, when you look at it, you see it has a pen with um, Wacom uh, digitizer input, you know, things like that. It's for potentially younger children that aren't up to typing yet. They're more used to the whole touch interface. I get that part. Uh, this just as a product itself just isn't really enticing to me beyond just you know breaking into a new category. Can I be honest with you for a second? Um, yes. So please. I'm actually I'm actually quite excited about Chromebooks uh, as tablets, if only because when I see this, I see it as Google's way of getting AR into the classroom, right? Google is putting so much emphasis on AR and VR running in Chrome natively. It's it's got this this has a front and back facing camera. Um, AR Core is built into the Android Play Store now, and very soon you'll be able to use AR Core apps on a device like this. It's not quite there yet, but there are a bunch of AR experiences that you can do right now on a Chromebook, and it'll only get more powerful. And my thing is, if Google wants to, Google currently owns the education market from a market share perspective, but if it wants to stop Apple's encroachment into AR, which is increasingly a a, a part of the curriculum, right? I think it's important for Google to position this as a viable competitor. So it's not an exciting product in any real way, but I think this is Google's way of kind of proving to school boards around the country that they can also do what the iPad can do. This runs Android apps. It, you know, obviously runs those Chrome apps like Google Docs and Sheets. And it has a pen. It has a, yeah, a Wacom pen included. Included. You don't have to spend $89. Um, and it goes inside the tablet. 
Oh, wow. Who'd have thunk it? So yeah, I mean, that's, I think, to me, why this is kind of interesting. Hayato, does this, you know, does this Im- impress you at all? What are your thoughts on it? Uh, I mean, you know, the, the the hardware itself, no. But the idea I like, um, I, I guess I like the idea of a, of a tablet Chromebook, you know, for, for educational purposes, at least. I'm just, I've never really gotten into Chrome OS all that much um, in general. I appreciate that, you know, it, it, for being a low cost device, you know, they, they are pretty much as good as it gets, but um, you know, I, I've never spent that much time with a Chromebook. I would like to see, you know, I, I think if we're going to start making Chrome OS tablets, I would love to see them revisit, you know, hardware like the Pixel C that all of, you know, eight people yes. ever bought. No, I have one on my desk right here. I actually use it. <laughs> yes, please. So Pixel C, rumor has it, was expected to launch with Chrome OS back in, when was it, 2015? Yeah. Um, amazing to think it. But Chrome is such an old, now, such a storied brand within and within uh, Google. You'd think that at some point there is going to be some crossover, but Jerry, who's on vacation, he can't be here today, but he he argues that the way that Google is approaching adding native Android experiences on Chrome is a better stopgap than trying to sort of put Android on tablets or in, continue to put oh, Android on, tablet, on tablets. Nobody likes Android on tablets. It hasn't been good for five years if it was ever good. Whereas the Chrome experience, even though it's not quite there yet, and if you want to, um, if you want to see some hilarious hating on the experience, go to our friend uh, David Ruddick, who is managing editor mm-hmm. at Android Police. His Twitter feed is full of like specific criticisms of the tablet experience on Chrome right now, and it's it's ridiculous. Like if you get a notification, for instance, and you swipe it. It doesn't swipe away like it does on Android. It actually opens the app that the notification came from, oh, yeah. which is ridiculous and stupid. But these are little things that Google has been kind of remiss in um, in, in fixing over the years, even while it slowly made t- Chrome a tablet-ish operating system, or at least a touch-friendly operating system. This also makes me wonder what um, the the next gen Pixelbook will look like. I mean, is it going to be right. um, maybe like a detachable thing again, or you know, what, what are we going to see if now we're going to delve into you know the the separate tablet form factor again? Well, it really depends on how far along Google really feels it is. Uh, the the things that you're pointing out there, Daniel, of you know, kind of just interface things that still don't make sense on Chrome OS on a tablet are are kind of coming from the opposite direction of where Android is on tablets. If you look at the Pixel C, the interface makes sense. It has multi-window, the navigation paradigms work, the settings work, things reflow properly for the screen in landscape and portrait. It uses external keyboards, you know, completely fine with keyboard shortcuts. It's a touch-first interface from the ground up. But the apps are horrendous, and I don't think they're ever going to be good enough on Android tablets. Like, that that ship has sailed. It's too far down the line. Chrome OS on tablets is coming from the opposite side, 
really, because you can always lean back on this crutch of having a full proper web browser that's better than the mobile, you know, quote unquote mobile version of Chrome on a tablet, an Android tablet. And as you feed in specific Android app experiences as well, the content is kind of there as the placeholder, but the interface is still not good enough. And so funny. These are the same kind of interface complaints that we've had with Chrome OS since I was reviewing Chromebooks four years ago. It's, it's kind of hilarious. It's just different little interface things, but you're, you look at Chrome OS and you're like, this is not a filled out complete operating system in the same way that Android is. Obviously Android has, has had way more iteration and way more development put into that interface because it didn't have this crutch of just having the browser when you go and that's out of their control. At that point, you open the browser, you go to websites, that's up to those developers of those websites to generate the interface at that point. It's different. And I just can't like, if they try to launch like serious tablet products running Chrome OS and they still have stupid things like, you can't swipe away notifications without opening the app. It's just ridiculous. It's absolutely insane that they're still having these types of problems. Yeah. It also, we still need better Android support. I think that's one of the main things, even though we just impugn Android apps that run on Chrome or on, uh, on, on tablets, the fact that you can resize them, you can have free form yeah. versions of Android apps means that you can cater the experience to what you're doing, which is a little different than it it, it feels like uh, on on Android tablets, and you know I want to contrast this to what Apple announced this week, which was a three hundred twenty nine dollars slightly upgraded iPad that supports Apple Pencil. Uh, the Pencil is the stylus that it was originally announced with, like the eight hundred dollars, it's like seven hundred dollar iPad Pro a couple of years ago. It's a good product and it's got very low latency. It has um it has like tilt support and on the iPad Pro at least it has pressure sensitivity but on this one it doesn't. So Apple wants to compete with Chrome or Google better in the education space and it's basically its salvo is hey we're going to give you hardware that it's a little bit more expensive, but the long-term value proposition is that your repair costs will be lower because we make better products than most Chromebooks. And it will work better because the software is, is much easier to understand. And we're going to make your software experience considerably better because we come at this from the perspective of supporting creators. So everything around the iPad is around like native touch and creating and all this stuff and the criticisms that i so there, there were a couple sides to this story right the criticisms were um generally that's fine and dandy if you want to spend all day drawing and doing ar but at the end of the day kids just have to do math and they have to do writing assignments and you need a keyboard and you need something that if you spill a drink on it it's not going to die in front of you so um Hayato, what's your take on that? Like, what's do you think that the the new iPad is is the right move for Apple, or should they just have completely undercut themselves, launch a two hundred dollar iPad with Apple Pencil, and you know 
flooded the system with with new products um you know i i think <laughs> I, I think if the new ipad would have had the um the, the smart connector then it, it would have been a, a much better buy because then you could just use the official apple keyboards and that would be great but um i don't know i i think it would have been nice to be a little cheaper just because it's you know i mean it 330 bucks um it doesn't seem for for you know compared to say a you know a, a more traditional Chromebook that that doesn't seem like that good of a value proposition considering you still have to buy the keyboard and everything, but at the same time you know like you said you can do um, in general you can do more with it as far as you know there, there's a lot more apps for things like say photo or video editing or or things like that yeah um, but I don't know I mean I I, th- I think really what Apple should have done, not, not just, you know, undercut the actual price of the device and make it say 200 or $50 or something like that. Uh, more of just bundle more things with it and keep it at the same three thirty or, or whatever the price would be. Mm-hmm. And I think that would really undercut, you know, something like the, um, the Acer Chromebook tab, um, which, you know, it, it does come with the, with the, the stylus, but it doesn't come with a keyboard right. still. So, yeah, I know it's, it's tough. It's, it's one of those things where it depends on what you need. I haven't been a student for many years. I don't know what it's like being in a grade six classroom today. I can imagine it's very difficult because because kids have shorter attention spans. They need to be engaged with, I would say, I would think more, um, I, I don't know, explicit types of um, audiovisual stimulus, right? So how do you cater to kids who learn very differently than the way that we learned? And I, I don't know which is a better product. I know that on the table, it probably looks like the iPad is a more in, enjoyable product to use, right? Um, but whether or not it's better for the school boards is better left up to uh, somebody with more experience in that. Andrew, wh- wh- what do you think about this? Uh, I think that that last portion is the most important one. You could talk about the way that it may enable lots of uh, learning in different ways and the the writing and the way that the device is durable and that kind of thing. Uh, but there's been a lot of talk about how Apple's um, device management, domain management, data management, and usernames and IDs and all this kind of stuff through iCloud is just not up to speed and requires a massive commitment, much larger than the iPads themselves and goes into the way that the, the, you know, whatever you want to call them, it people all the way down to the individual teachers being able to manage all of these devices and not be able to use certain times, uh, types of custom domains and not having a good kind of classwork management type of system like Google's, uh, classwork system those things are more important than, you know, we can nitpick about the price of, you know, the iPad being $15 more or $50 more than a Chromebook and the pencil is not included. Those things do matter, but they don't matter as much as the fact that these schools would have to completely switch systems and maybe Apple system just doesn't offer what they need in the first place. And maybe they can afford to bring tablets in because they're only $50 more than the Chromebooks they were already specking out, but maybe they can't afford 
thousand dollars per teacher on top of that for every single person to have a MacBook Pro. Mm-hmm. Well, you and, know, I, I think I think something a lot of people don't realize is that actually the the sort of I guess like the the different version of iOS for educational purposes has a lot more um, features for you know d- multiple device management. So like a teacher can. Mm-hmm. If everybody's running the educational version of iOS, then, you know, the, the, the teacher can actually like see the screens of everybody's iPads individually. And then, you know, if they need to, they can, you know, they can uh, airplay onto a onto a TV monitor or something like that. You know, just one specific student's screen. So, yeah, it's not, you know, it, it's it's a little more flexible than iOS generally is, but it's still I'm sure. I'm sure there's uh you know plenty of alternatives from other other you know services like you know like Chrome OS. And I think that the the big point that a lot of people brought up that I hadn't really thought about, you know, we're talking about you know classroom 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 and like Hayato said there are, there are lots of cool things you can do when everyone is in that system uh when you want to talk about moving stuff between students and between students and teachers. But what happens when the kid goes home? Um they leave their their iPad at school because they're shared between kids, you know, it's it's not always a one-to-one program. They leave their iPad at school. Uh, they can't access their classwork. You know, what, they go home and they have a Chromebook or they go home and they have a Windows box, uh, you know, a shared computer in their in their family. They don't access their their classwork. It's Apple classwork. Um, that's that's I think a way bigger hurdle that you know you don't think about when you're you're just thinking how does it work in the classroom you know the students are you know they're kids all the time they're they're students beyond when they're in the classroom true yeah it's it's i i don't know how the homework situation is is dealt with i i would love to get an educator on the show to actually talk us through the way Definitely. that you know we I, I just think that it's it's such a difficult problem to solve for. There's an, a much, much higher expectation of um, technology in the classroom. A lot of kids have phones, especially in kind of upper middle school, like grade six, grade seven, up to the end of high school. And those affect the way that we learn. I know that just having a phone near me while I work affects how much pro- affects my productivity and how much I get done. I can't imagine how difficult it is for teachers when every kid has a phone and they're grappling with, you know, do I, do I, uh, do I take the phones from the kids at the beginning of right. class? Do I let them have it, but restrict their use? I know a lot of schools actually block cell phone signals inside the school so that they don't Good. have access to the entire internet. And then their Wi-Fi blocks certain websites so that they can't necessarily like use Instagram or they can't visit, you know, certain websites that are prohibited by the school's um, VPN. You're right. I mean, when I was when I was in high school, you know, my Sony Ericsson uh, candy bar phone wasn't really going to be doing anything to distract me. Yeah, right. Snake. You know, that's it's a completely different world. I didn't have a phone in in high school. It was um, I got one in first year university, and and it did. I mean, it was back then. It was they, they were just nothing they were used for making phone calls. So I would love to revisit that. If And and if you're listening, if you're an educator, if you're in a school system that deals with technology, send us an email podcast at androidcentral.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear uh, how various pieces of technology, how Chrome, how 
iPads, how phones in general affect your ability to do your job. So, yeah. Um, all right. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about our next sponsor before we move on to our final topic. And as every week, that sponsor is Thrifter. So Thrifter is the best place to go for all of your deals, tech or otherwise. It's got a beautiful, easy to use website that shows you deals as they come in. You click on them, you see if you like it, and you buy it. And it's that simple. As we do every week, we go around and we highlight one deal that we like. And uh, given that Hayato hasn't done this in a while, I'm going to force you to go first. So enjoy <laughs> thrown into the fire. <laughs> What's your well, pick for this week? Um, I really, really enjoyed Burnout Paradise as a kid. Um, and so I, my, my pick is probably just, you know, they've, they've got the remastered version um, for 30 bucks on Thrifter uh, over at Amazon. And, you know, it, it's it's just this this sort of, uh, you know, destructive. It's it's not so much a racing game, even though it's, you know, you pretty much only drive a car in it. But it's not really a racing game as much as it is, you know, you're just supposed to wreck into everything and destroy as many objects as you can, which is kind of what I tend to do in racing games anyway. So Right, whether you want um, to or not. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I really loved Burnout Paradise. So that's, I, I, I'm probably going to pick this up, actually, and, and have some fun with Remaster here in a little bit. So is this, um, I haven't played it. Is it like Carmageddon where you're on a course or is it ostensibly like a racing game that you just happen to like cause mega mega destruction? It's been a long time since I've played it, but, uh, as far as I remember, there's, you're, you're basically just on a course with the, you know, your only goal is just to, to wreck things. Um, there might be like a racing portion of it. And I think some of the other burnout games you do kind of have more of like a, story-driven racing kind of thing. But for Burnout Paradise, I remember it just being kind of destructive. Yeah, I, I enjoy those games a lot. I love Carmageddon when it was first released in 1997. My God. Um, I played that a lot. I played it all the time. <laughs> it was an amazing game. Um, Andrew, what is your pick for this week? Something that is the complete opposite of a video game it is a knife set from Chicago Cutlery because I can vouch for this because I have this exact same knife set, but it's slightly smaller because I don't need eight steak knives. I don't, I don't know. We just don't have dinner parties like that. But it is $98 down from $150 on Amazon. And it, so if you're, you may think that you're not a cook or, you know, you don't need fancy knives or anything like that. These aren't fancy. It's just a good set of knives. And if you're still using some crappy set, of you know no offense ikea knives or something like that uh something cheap no name off of amazon don't use those you're not you're gonna you're gonna one you're gonna hurt yourself if you're trying to cut things Uh, a dull knife can be a lot more dangerous than a sharp one for what it's worth uh go get some good knives 98 bucks and you'll have them for years and years and years and years huh well i agree Good knives are yeah. very important. I actually bought a knife, I think, 15 years ago now. I, it was just a, a good kind of high-quality Japanese chef's knife. I sharpen it every couple of weeks, and I'm still using it. It's in perfect condition. So it's one yeah. of those things where you buy it once, and you probably won't even need to buy another set for the rest of your life if you mm-hmm. treat them well. Um, so my pick is quite simple. It's a movie. It's The Matrix. It's $5 for the first <laughs> Matrix movie in uh, – in, in HD. It's not in 4K, but whatever. And 
It's five bucks. It's on iTunes. And you can get it everywhere for five bucks. I think it's on sale right now on Google Play Store as well. Um, it's, I don't know, still in my top three sci-fi films ever. And that includes Fifth Element and, oh, I don't know. Uh, what is, what's my other one? Yeah. Anyway, I'll just say it's in my top three, but it's my, it's one of my favorite movies. I've seen this a million times. It's, it's amazing. And five bucks can't go wrong because I don't think it's on Netflix or any of the other streaming services. So get it. It is buy it, not. Love it. And just forget that they ever made the sequels. Just, just, just forget. They don't, they <laughs> That's don't exist. at Journey Dan on Twitter. No, no, seriously. I used to stand <laughs> for these films. I used to love the second and third films when I was a kid. I watched them a lot. When they came out in 2003, I watched the, I watched um, Revisited, Re- uh, Revolutions, and I loved it. And they were great sci-fi films because the action was good. And then I watched them 15 years later. And they are horrible. They are. They don't hold up the at all. The third one's definitely bad. No, I'll they're both bad. The second and third are bad. The CGI doesn't look good anymore. The stories are convoluted and so self-indulgent. Oh, my God. When I was a kid and I was all into philosophy and everything needed to make sense and, you know, there, there was like all – there was mystery and everything, I felt like these were movies that were speaking to me. But they are so self-indulgent and I find them to be very difficult to watch because they're complicated for complicated sake. If you just want a great sci-fi film, The Matrix. And yeah, at me, seriously, Journey Dan. I'm totally willing to stand up for my uh, Matrix beliefs now because they're different. They've changed since I was younger. So have yours changed? Let me know. Um, And let me know if you bought the film because that would be cool if you did because that means that our ads work. Okay, that's it. Thank you very much for Thrifter, uh, to Thrifter for sponsoring as usual. And... uh, Go to their website, get their newsletter, do the thing. Guys, last topic of the day. We're getting getting close to the end. Let's talk Huawei P20, P20 Pro. Let's do uh, Alex Proud. Um, we've talked about notches. We've talked about hardware. We've talked about cameras. Hayato, take us through why the P20 is, or P20 Pro more specifically, is interesting. Uh, well, <laughs> two reasons to me, at least the, the smaller one is just the, the amazing, you know, color shift finish that I want on everything yeah. for the rest of my life. But the big one is the three camera system. It's got a 40 megapixel primary sensor. Uh, the secondary is a 20 megapixel monochrome. And the third lens is, if I remember right, an eight megapixel, yes. um, which measures Depth, I believe. As a, it's a 3X telephoto lens, oh, which is right. different from the usual 2X we see. And it's optically stabilized. And then if you different. combine them all, you can actually get a five times sort of a mostly lossless software zoom. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we were t- we've been talking about all of these limitations for Android manufacturers. We've been talking about the notch. And this is, these, this, is, this phone is kind of the culmination of all that, right? It's got, a pretty they, Huawei calls it a full vision display. It's a the pro version has an 18 by 9 aspect ratio uh, with a small notch, and it's got a front-facing fingerprint sensor on the bottom, which is very small, but I don't think it actually does any harm to the design. I, I like no. I like it. Um on that on that back, Andrew, that color shifting light pattern thing looks so good it's so good right like it just does it does something for me i think this is 
ignoring the software, and we'll talk about the software in a minute, ignoring the software, I think this is probably the best looking phone released this year. Yeah, Huawei has started started to nail the uh, the hardware design. They used to be really good at the execution of really boring design or no design at all, just kind of materials taken to their end you know end results. This is like purposefully designed. It's not over the top. The color shift is really cool. They announced what four, five different colors, four different. Uh, yeah, it was four four colors. Yeah. Uh, the one that's the, the craziest, I think is the pink gold one that has the most like flashy color changing, but the dark blue one as well. Um, the, but not just the back, it's all of the sides, the way it curves around and everything meets up the triple camera thing looks a little wonky, but you know, that's fine. The, it's just nice looking phone and it's just not something you would expect from Huawei, especially if you hadn't looked at the Mate 10 Pro. Yeah, and this phone has basically the same hardware that was in the Mate 10 Pro. It's got which is solid. It is lots solid, of hardware. Right? It's, it's um, high, the uh, Kirin 970 is still faster than the Snapdragon 845 in many respects, and it's got that built-in neural processing unit, which instead of just being used for random camera identification things on the Mate 10. You know, this is a cat, this is a plant, whatever. Um, the the P20 Pro actually looks like it uses it to greater effect. It facilitates something with a, on paper, it sounds very difficult to do. Um, it, it, long exposure of low light scenes without a tripod. And it does this by, I sent, I think, measuring the depth of a room and figuring, and then constantly taking photos because the 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 um the processor is powerful enough and then using ai to stitch a bunch of those photos together to generate a lighter photo yeah. with more information that was taken using a, without a, a a tripod so you you know obviously your hand is going to be shaking a little bit and it uses ai to compensate for that apparently it's good i mean it's solid right you, the results that we've seen have been amazing coming really out of this good. 40 megapixel sensor. Yeah. And, and what it does is it uses pixel binning, which we've seen on Sony phones. We saw on the old Nokia um, Windows phones for a long time. It takes a 40 megapixel shot, uses four pixels uh, for, for every one output, and you get a 10 megapixel photo with much more detail. Which is a good amount of resolution, for sure. And I think that... Yeah, Huawei is smart to continue to lean on its secondary camera as a monochrome one as well. It's just a good differentiator that nobody else is really doing, as we've seen lots of telephoto, a little bit of wide angle, uh, but nobody's really doing the the monochrome, and uh, their their processing on those mono photos is great as well. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, Hayato, you're you, you take a lot of photos when you've had high, um, Huawei phones with mono, monochrome sensors. Do you? ever just use the monochrome sensor to take black and white photos <laughs> you know i don't uh oh, because I love it. my my fiance is a concert photographer and I'm, I'm uh just completely spoiled on her black and whites um so i, I don't really I, I haven't messed with it at all but the the photos i've seen like uh michael take and, and a bunch of other people they definitely look uh better than pretty much any other phone can get that's true. Michael loves that monochrome uh, sensor on on Huawei phones. 
That's Mr. Mobile to you and me. <laughs> yes, Michael, whose birthday it was yesterday. Um, so happy birthday, Mr. Mobile, if you are listening. I know he does listen to the show every once in a while. So, yeah, I mean, this is an interesting implementation. For what it's worth, DxO mark scores are higher than anything else. It got a 114 on photos, which is the highest it's it's ever any phone has ever received, and 98 for video, which puts it just ahead of the Pixel 2. Um, I, I I'm excited about this. What I find interesting is just uh, <laughs> Andrew, you wrote something today about how Samsung is its own worst software enemy, basically. Yes. Man, that would have been a better headline. Um, and I found, you know, that's to some extent true, but I've been using the S9 Plus for a few weeks. The software is fine. I think that applies far more to the to the EMUI and Huawei. Yes. Uh, absolutely. I, I know that Hayato can talk more about this because he's been using them more, more recently, but it it's just one of these things where you look you look at the the P20 beautiful device. All the camera stuff looks super interesting. They're doing this really good thing of combining lots of hardware with lots of, you know, smarts in the back end. The internals are, you know, they beat the Galaxy S9 Plus across the board. They beat the Pixel 2 across the board. Then you realize you have to use Huawei software that's just demonstrably broken in many places and just seems just seems crazy that they, they've made this huge leap in terms of design and hardware and everything uh, just in the last 18 months, really. But their software just has not taken, you know, even even the smallest of important steps toward you know, just general things not being broken levels. For, for what it's worth, I, w- I will say that you can mostly make EMUI um, at least look more like stock Android. Obviously, if you throw on a, a custom launcher or whatever, um, the big thing for me, that's always been the, the main issue is just the super aggressive, um, you know, like background application management, um, which of course, you know, they, they, they do that to save on battery life, which is why you can get such insane endurance out of the, you know, the, the mate 10 pro with its 4,000 milliamp hour battery, which is the same amount that the P20 pro has. Um, but you know, if you disable a lot of that, you know, background management, it really you can you can make it. Uh, I'm not going to say good, but you can make it you know workable. You you can make EMUI acceptable to to use and and you know throughout the day. But they don't want to make you. They don't want to make it easy for you to do that. They they yeah hide all of these settings within s- menus and sub menus. They really go out of their way to make sure you keep those features enabled, which I find so frustrating. And just yeah. from uh, for a U.S. audience, right, where that is clearly demonstrated that it does not want these features um, and these these persistent notifications, and I, that's why it it comes down to the same type of thing that I'm talking about. That in this um, this editorial focused on the Galaxy S9 Plus from today, people are and people are kind of shocker, I'm not really getting the point here. Is it's not the fact like I understand that you can turn the things off. Mostly you could turn off 90 percent of the stuff or, you know, whatever, something close to a hundred percent, but it's the fact that it takes you literally days to get through the experience of using it to know what to turn off and tweak all of these things. That's just crazy. Uh, you're buying in the case of the P 20 pro, like a thousand dollar phone 
and it has all of this thoughtful design as this really high-end stuff. And then you have to go in there and pick through all of these deep settings and pull out all of this stuff and turn it off. And to say that you can make it mostly usable and you can get rid of most of the stuff is not really a ringing endorsement (laughs) of these phones. And it, it really, of course, it comes down to your priorities. And I'm not even talking about the personal preference aspects of, oh, I don't like how that color palette is, or I don't like what those icons look like. You can change a lot of that stuff. You can switch out the launcher and the keyboard. I get that. But there are these still, these core fundamental parts of the system and how it works and how they do the background app management and notifications. And you still can't expand notifications on the lock screen on Huawei phones. It's just, it's just absolutely bonkers to me. And that's why it's the same kind of situation as this, uh, the Samsung editorial where, you know, I use the phone despite its software shortcomings, not because of its software strengths. And I think that's a little bit, it's crazy that you're still at that point with these massive uh, companies releasing these extremely uh, impressive devices. So the example I use for Huawei is that you still have to manually enable HDR in its camera app. And not just that, it's a separate mode. It's not even a... Like, like it, Sony, it's old school Sony style. It's not even a toggle. Yeah. It's a separate mode that you have to explicitly enable in the in the settings. Um, it is the most bizarre thing, especially on a company that by a company that touts its AI capabilities. HDR is table stakes. You need a good HDR feature. It just needs to be in, in Apple. Like on the on the complete other side of it, Apple doesn't even give you the option of HDR anymore. It just it just figures it out for you in the app and just enables it on its own. Like. You just get a photo with HDR if it decides that a scene needs it. Google as well with the Pixel 2, you can still disable it, but it just does it automatically. HDR Plus is just magic. I don't understand why why Huawei just makes its software so overly complex for no reason. So Alex, to his credit, has said that, or to their credit, has said that EMEI 8.1 is... I'm not going to say lighter, but he said it's a little bit easier to use. It's a little smoother. We'll see. We'll see. Do you guys remember the um, the light L16 camera with yeah. the 16 different yes. camera sensors on it? That's that's kind of where I'm I'm envisioning Huawei going <laughs> eventually as they keep on adding more cameras. Yeah, I, I mean, geez, it, once you have three, you know, you could you could see, you know, as long as they have the room in there, they keep making big phones. Uh, you have like the regular, the monochrome, the long uh, telephoto lens, the wide lens, a specific low light camera. You could easily see them getting five or six back. <laughs> so, but that, but you still couldn't expand notifications in the lock screen. Um, light is, is an interesting company because they finally released the L16, right? It took two years for them to announce it to the time that it came out. And the, the quality of the photos is apparently terrible. So yeah, watch um, uh, the Mr. Mobile review on that on YouTube. I I actually just physically recoiled when I saw the the price of that thing. Yeah, it's it's but I mean, the technology is sound and it looks good, but it just yeah, so weird. And on the other side, uh, we talked about this last week. Lytro, 
the company that Google. So we thought last week that Google bought Lytro. It's not true. Google acquired some of Lytro's IP and then hired a bunch of its employees prior to Lytro, the company actually shutting down. So a little so bit, effectively the same thing. Yeah, it's it's like an aqua hire, but it's a little bit sadder because it sounds like Lytro. The idea of it didn't really work out. It's sort of, you know, Google just sort of went in like a bunch of vultures and picked the carcass off the company. <laughs> <laughs> so as as it's wont to do. I mean, whatever. Um, anything else on the P twenty guys? Is it? It's it's hard to say much before we get them. You know, it's not coming to the U.S., but we'll get it. Yeah, I mean, I, I live in the United States, so there's there's that problem. There's that, yeah. Um, we'll see. I, I'm I'm excited. I'm 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 interested in in seeing whether it's a success. I know it's definitely a big gambit. Huawei spent a lot of money on this launch, lots of money. They oh yeah brought. I think Alex said there were a thousand journalists in Paris for the launch. They, I know a couple of my. YouTube influencer friends in in Toronto were whisked away flying business class to Paris for three days uh, for the launch. Like they were splashing money when it count, you know, where it counted. I remember when they splashed money for the uh, Honor 8 launch and that, that worked out. Yeah, no, I think the, that's, that's, that's done really well for them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. So yeah, I think they learned their lessons. I think that's it i think we're gonna stop it there we have um we're, we're getting to that time where uh, hopefully bring alex on next week to give us some some proper takes on the p20 yeah if he got out of touched the, it the uh, charles de gaulle airport hopefully he can um regale us with with stories hey you can you can spend a you can spend a whole week in that airport no problem easy yeah i was actually in the uh Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam for a couple of days between my last trips. And that airport is incredible. It's mm-hmm. big. It's well laid out. You don't actually have to transfer between terminals. And oh, Char- Charles de Gaulle is in none of those things. You just you can spend a week in there just trying to find where, where to exit. Oh, I see. Okay. Actually, I've never <laughs> been there, so I don't, I don't know. Yeah. You're doing yourself a favor. Yeah. I, I will avoid that as a, as a transfer hub. Uh, well... We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much, guys. Hayato, we r- really appreciated you uh, filling filling Alex's space. Um, of course. And, uh, sorry, my uh, sorry, my connection dropped out for a little bit. I think I think nobody's going to notice that if we edit it properly. So <laughs> you didn't you didn't but drop. You just now they you know. just you just weren't talking. And yeah. um, and we'll have you back again. Maybe once the One Plus Six comes out, we can compare the haptics. To Sounds its like a plan. Andrew, great radio. Thank you very much. Yeah, exactly. Just yes. listen. Listen to this. Is, is that a is that a tight vibrating vibration? If you motor? can, if you can hear this, that like <laughs> you know, if you can actually hear it, it's bad. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Thank you very much, Daniel. And uh, we will talk to you next week. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.